Good morning, Grace. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. And, and while you're turning there, I would like to ask you to be in prayer about something. In about 30 minutes, the Dallas Cowboys will be playing the Green Bay Packers, and I would like you to pray that they win. We can debate the theology of that later, but just pray, and then we can talk about it. 1 Peter chapter 2. I thought about calling in sick today because I've been sick, but... Um, and I don't have DVR, so this is how much I love you. I chose you over the Cowboys. So, First Peter chapter 2. Sometimes you need to get recalibrated about what life is about. And it's not about the Dallas Cowboys. Sometimes you need to be reminded why we are here on this planet. And sometimes the person to remind you is a dead theologian. And the dead theologian that will help us get recalibrated this morning was a tall, lanky, often emaciated and sick man who dressed in knickers and wore a powdered wig. Sometimes the person who recalibrates you with the gospel is a man dressed in knickers and who wore a powdered wig. I have yet to wrap my brain around the powdered wig and why and how it caught on and why men would want to wear a powdered wig. But even though I do not understand the powdered wig craze of many, many years ago, I have no bones about taking my theological cues from a man dressed in knickers and who wore a powdered wig. And that man's name is Jonathan Edwards. And what Jonathan Edwards said in one of his sermons is very relevant to our passage today. In fact, his sermon title is very relevant to our series in 1 Peter. The sermon I'm referring to is titled, The Christian Pilgrim, or The True Christian Life, A Journey Toward Heaven. In this sermon, preached in September of 1733, Jonathan Edwards, wearing a powdered wig as he preached, said this, and let it recalibrate you this morning. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends, they are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These, these people, these things, are but scattered beams. But God is the sun. These are but streams. But God is the fountain. These are but drops. But God is the ocean. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? Why would we labor for all these other things? And they're not necessarily bags. If you know Edward's theology, he would say, you can enjoy God as you enjoy these things. But why labor for all these things to find our happiness and joy? We were made to go to heaven fully to enjoy God. That's what life is about. 
But it's not just a personal endeavor. We are part of a pilgrim people, the church, the people of God. And we want to see as many people as possible to be able to go to heaven fully to enjoy God. And that's why our mission statement at Grace is this, and it's on the front of your worship bulletin this week. It's this, we exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. That's our mission statement here at Grace, is that we would maximize our joy in Jesus so that Jesus is magnified, and not just in our lives. We want that for every person in this church, every person in this city, every person in this nation, and every person in every single people group around the world. That's what we're saying in our mission statement. We exist to ignite a passion in every single person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere we go and in everything we do. That's what we want for you. Wherever you go in life, we want you to glorify God and we want you to enjoy him wherever you go. Whatever you do in this world, we want you to do it in a way that you glorify God and that you enjoy him. And if you can glorify him and enjoy him while watching the Dallas Cowboys, go for it. That's why we exist. We want every single person to find their joy in Jesus, to come to see and to savor him as their greatest treasure in this life. So we are all about igniting a passion around here. That's what we're about here. We want to be used by God to ignite a passion in other people for God. And we hope that you catch that desire. And we hope that you catch that passion through all of our ministries here at Grace. If you want to know why we exist as a church, there it is. And if we are not doing this as a church, then we need to get recalibrated by the gospel as a church. Because that is why we exist as a church. To ignite a passion in every person. To glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. But we aren't just called to ignite passion. We're not just in the passion igniting business around here. We're also in the killing business. We're also called to kill passions, to extinguish them. We're called to kill certain passions. The Puritans as well as Jonathan Edwards and lots of other dead theologians, use the word mortification to describe killing or putting to death sinful passions. And that's what we're called to do as God's people. We're called to kill the sinful passions and the sinful desires that still reside in us as believers. That even though we're forgiven, even though we're justified, declared righteous by God, all because of Jesus, even though that is true of us, we all know that we still have these sinful passions and desires that remain inside of us. So in one sense, our business is killing. We're sin killers. Therefore, the album title by the band Megadeth should be true of us as it relates to sin. Don't know if you listen to Megadeth or if you still do. Two of their members are now believers, actually. But Megadeth's first album, which aren't Christian, their first album was titled this, Killing is my business. 
and business is good. That's morbid, I know. But that should be true of us as Christians. Killing sin is our business, and business is good. And business is good because we all have remaining sin. We all have many sinful passions that need to be killed. And we'll have these sinful passions until we arrive in heaven fully to enjoy God forever. So until we arrive in heaven fully to enjoy God, here's our big idea today for today's sermon, which is pretty much the big idea of our lives until we see Jesus. And it's this, fight your passions and not other people. Fight your passions, not other people. Peter wants his readers to know that God's mercy that comes to sinners like us in the gospel should make us fight our own sinful passions and not fight other sinful people. We saw last week in verse 10, he says, once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And then he begins in verse 11 today to say, abstain from the passions of the flesh. So in other words, Peter is saying this, God's mercy recalibrates you to fight your passions, to fight your sinful desires, to fight your selfishness, and not to fight other people. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. So when you realize that God has not given you what you deserve because you're a sinner, because of your sin, when you realize that, the appropriate God-honoring response is that you begin not giving people what they deserve. Instead of fighting other people, fighting with other people, instead of saying them's fighting words with other people, you start fighting yourself. You start fighting your sin. You start fighting the sinful passions that remain in you. And so what Peter is saying in this section of his letter is that if God has been merciful to you, you should be merciful to other people. And we'll see that over the coming weeks. Because God has been merciful to you, Christian, not giving you what you deserve, then you should be merciful in all of your relationships. Be merciful in all of your relationships. And Peter will spell out what these relationships are in the rest of his letter. We should be merciful in our relationships with our government. Maybe we should let that just sit in the air for a minute. We should be merciful in our relationships with our boss. We should be merciful in our relationships in our marriage with our spouse. We should be merciful in our relationships with our church family. I don't know about you, but I know that I need a lot of mercy in all of these relationships in my life because I know that I'm not always merciful when it comes to the government. And I'm not always merciful when it comes to my bosses, the elders of this church. And I know that I'm not always merciful with my wife, Heather, or our kids. And I know that I'm not merciful enough with everyone in this church family. But Peter would say to you and me that if we have been the recipients of God's mercy, then we should be extending that mercy to everyone in our life, especially when they don't deserve it. So Peter is stressing that 
Because God has been merciful to you in the gospel, you should be merciful in all of your relationships. But Peter is also saying something else here. He's saying this, don't be merciful to yourself. Don't be merciful to your sin. Kill your sin. Be merciful to others. Yes, don't give them what they deserve, but do not be merciful with your sin to the sinful passions that remain in you. They must be killed, Peter says. So mercy will make you a killer, a killer of your own sinful passions. That's what Peter will say today. So look at verse 11. Remember in verse 10, he just said that you had not received mercy. Now you have received mercy. And now he says this in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Before I tell you about how mercy makes you a killer, notice the first word in verse 11. Beloved. What a beautiful word. This word is, is pregnant. It's, it's bloated. The imagery I was thinking of this week is like, because I grew up in, in Oklahoma, is like a dog tick that's just, blo- you ever seen a big dog tick? In the country where I lived, you would see them on dogs. This word beloved is, is pregnant like a dog tick with, with the gospel, if you will. It's just, it's bloated, it's full. It's pregnant with gospel truth. And it's a natural description of Peter's audience because this is the identity of all the people that God has had mercy on. We are God's beloved children. And here's what it means to be God's beloved. It's the love and the affection that God the Father has for his son Jesus. Think about it. The love and the affection that God the Father has for his son Jesus, he now has for us. God loves us because we are in union with Christ, which is what we saw last week. Because we're in union with Christ, God loves us just as much as he loves his son, Jesus. Isn't that amazing? In fact, this word beloved has the idea and was used in classical Greek with reference to an only child, And so the takeaway is this, God loves you, Christian, just as if you were his only child. God loves you as if you were his only child. Have you seen single parents? They only have one child to throw all their love and devotion on. Can you imagine being the only child of God and receiving his love and affection and devotion? Can you imagine how much love and affection and devotion God would dole out on you if you were his only child? Well, that's what the word beloved means. So it is true of you, Christian. God loves you right now as if you were his only child. And you are loved as if you were God's only child precisely because God had mercy on you. And that mercy, not getting what you deserve for your sin, that mercy will make you a killer. 
Coming to grips with God's mercy will turn you into a person who wants to please their heavenly father. Coming to grips with God's mercy, and it's a daily, moment-by-moment thing. It's not a one-time thing. Coming to grips with God's mercy, rehearsing the gospel over and over again throughout the day will not make you a lazy Christian. Quite the opposite. Mercy will turn you into a killer of sin. And that's exactly what Peter will tell his readers now. He will tell them to do something. He hasn't commanded them much. He hasn't given them much to do up to this point in his letter. He hasn't given them much to do at all. In fact, the first to do that he gives them doesn't come until chapter 1, verse 13. So Peter spends the first 12 verses of his letter rehearsing the gospel with his readers. He wants to ground them and root them in the gospel, what God has already done for them in Christ before he ever tells them anything that they must do. So after 12 verses in chapter 1, highlighting God's mercy to them, which Peter mentions in verse 3, Peter finally tells them to do something, beginning in verse 13. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then the following verses, he says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Then he says, be holy. Then he says, conduct yourselves with fear. And Peter will kind of return to all these thoughts today in today's passage. But then in chapter 1, verse 18, he returns to the gospel again for a little bit. And then he will finally tell his readers to love one another. And then he will tell them in chapter 2, verse 1, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And then he will tell them to long for the pure spiritual milk. This is Peter's pattern throughout this entire book. He talks about the gospel for a while, what God has already done for us in Christ, and then he tells us to do something. So Peter returns to the gospel for a while, then he finally tells his readers to do something in chapter 2, verse 1. And then he returns to the gospel for another spell before he finally tells them to do something in chapter 2, verse 11. This is his pattern throughout the entire book. Talk about the gospel. Talk about God's mercy. Talk about Jesus for a little bit. What God has already done for us. And then he tells us something that we must do. But notice here in verse 11 of chapter 2 that this is a new theme in the book. Peter started in chapter 1 verse 3 by stressing the mercy of God. And then he wraps up this section, this entire section from the beginning of the book until now by stressing the mercy of God. So look at chapter 1 verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now look at chapter 2 verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter grounds his audience in the mercy of God, what God has done for them. And now he moves on to give them something to do once again. And the thing that he wants them to do is to put to death the sinful passions that remain inside of his readers. Peter wants his readers to know that God's mercy will turn God's people into killers God's mercy, when apprehended, will make you a killer. When you begin to understand just how merciful God has been to you because of Jesus, it should make you a killer, 
a killer of your own personal sinful passions. So please don't miss the connection between verse 10 and verse 11. It's the mercy of God that turns us into killers. It's the mercy of God that turns us into people who kill our own sin. And that's the thing that we are called to do, which Peter tells us in verse 11. He says, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. That's the command now. Come to grips with the fact that God had mercy on you, that he didn't give you what you deserve, and now go kill your evil passions. Come to grips with the fact that God did not have mercy on his own son, Jesus, but rather gave Jesus what you deserved on the cross and then let that truth cause you to go kill your sinful passions. And why should we kill these passions? Well, one, as we've been discussing, because of God's mercy. But Peter gives us two more reasons. One, because we are sojourners and exiles in this world. And secondly, we should kill these passions because these passions want to kill us. They have waged war against our soul, Peter says. So let's talk about these first. We are sojourners and exiles in this world. Peter already mentioned this twice in his letter in chapter 1, verse 1, and in chapter 1, verse 17. Peter is writing to a people who do not belong to this world or this world system. Peter is writing to a people who are waiting for Jesus to return and to renew this world, redeem this world, set up his eternal kingdom so that we might be with him fully to enjoy him forever. So we are exiles in the sense that we are strangers in this world. And and trust me, unbelievers think that we are weird. They don't understand us. So we're strangers to this world system. We don't belong to this world system because now we belong to Jesus. We are his adopted children. We are his beloved. So we're pilgrims. We're sojourners. As Tom Schreiner says, believers are exiles not because they are displaced from their homeland. Believers are exiles because they suffer for their faith in a world that finds their faith off-putting and strange. God's election is what counts for their being exiles. They are not aliens literally. They are sojourners because they are elected by God because their citizenship is in heaven rather than on earth. So we're exiles Sojourners, pilgrims, we're transients, we're temporary residents, we're immigrants, we're aliens, and we're strangers in this world precisely because God chose us, because we are his elect, because we, as we saw last week, are a chosen people, because we are God's people, because we belong to Jesus now, because we are his beloved And so that's one reason, another reason, why we are to put to death the passions that wage war against us. Because we belong to Jesus now, and the sinful passions that remain in each one of us stand in stark contrast to our Savior who has loved us and given himself for us, who has redeemed us. And that's why we're called to abstain, Peter says, which is literally to distance ourselves from these sinful passions that are waging war inside of us. We are in a battle. Sin wants to kill us. So we should want to kill it, right? 
When Peter speaks of the passions of the flesh, he's speaking of the natural desires that human beings have apart from the work of the Spirit of God. It's, it's selfishness, basically. It's any sinful desire that we have. I know we tend to read passions of the flesh here as having to do with sexual immorality and lust and things like that, but Peter has in mind here any sinful desire that we still have inside of our hearts. And because we have a lot of these sinful desires and because Peter describes it as a war, that means that the Christian life is not easy. That means that the Christian life is war. Christian life is dying to self all the time. And that's painful, isn't it? Nobody wants to die to self. Nobody wants to give up the last bagel in the house, do they? No. Nobody wants to give up the last bit of ice cream. Oh, you can have it. Go ahead. Nobody does that. Run off into the bathroom and lock the door and eat the ice cream. Dispose of the evidence. The Christian life is hard because it's war. It's dying to self all the time. It's all these other wonderful, beautiful things. But listen, dying to self is hard. It's hard because it's a battle between the flesh and the spirit. And Martin Luther describes the conflict between flesh and spirit so well in his commentary on 1 Peter. Listen to what Luther said. But as soon as the spirit and faith enter our hearts, when we become Christians... We become so weak that we think we cannot beat down the least imaginations and sparks of temptations and see nothing but sin in ourselves from the crown of our head even to the foot. And it's like when you become a Christian, you suddenly realize, man, I am really a sinner. Then he says, for before we believed, we walked according to our own lusts. But now the Spirit has come and would purify us, and there arises a conflict. Here, the devil, the flesh, and the world oppose themselves to faith. If you, then, have wicked thoughts, you should not, on, account, on this account, despair. You shouldn't despair if an evil, wicked thought comes through your mind because you're still a sinner, saved by God's grace. He's saying you shouldn't despair. Only be on your guard that you should not be taken prisoner by them. But you are to understand, if you are a Christian, that you must experience all kinds of opposition and wicked dispositions in the flesh. For wherever there is faith, there come a hundred evil thoughts, a hundred strugglings more than before. Only see to it that you act the man and not suffer yourself to be taken captive and continue to resist and to say, I will not, I will not, I will not. He says, when you become a believer, you enter into a war. You're going to have wicked thoughts, wicked, sinful, evil desires that are still a part of you. And he says, you need to realize that. Don't despair of that. Just man up and fight sin by the power of the Spirit and the Word of God. Now, that's great. That's Luther so far. I love it. But what he says next tickled me this last week. Here's what he says. For we must confess that the case is much like that of an ill-matched couple who are continually complaining of one another and what one will do, the other will not. I love that. Believers and sin, these sinful desires that remain are like an ill-matched couple. We're like those couples that you see that fight and bicker all the time. Have you seen couples like this? All they do is fight and bicker. I hope your marriage is not that way. You ever see a couple do that? Always at each other's throats. 
That's what Luther is saying here, that the relationship between believers and sin, between believers and the passions of the flesh that still remain inside of us, that it's like an ill-matched couple who are just at each other's throats all the time. We bicker with these sinful passions. We fight, we quarrel, we argue, we squabble, we wrangle, fight, disagree, dispute, spar. We have words, we're at each other's throats, we lock horns, we scrap with these sinful passions and desires that remain in every single one of us. So if you wanna bicker with anyone or anybody about anything, bicker with your sin. Hate your sin. Fight your sin. But it goes beyond that. We're not called to merely squabble with sin. We're not called to just fight sin. We're called to kill it, to mortify it, to put it to death. Because what Puritan John Owen said is true. And and John Owen wore a wig too, so please don't let that bother you. All the good Puritans and theologians wore wigs. Don't knock them because some of y'all had some crazy hairstyles through the day. Some of you lived through the 80s and you sported a mullet. So please don't knock these theologians. Some of you were business in front, party in back, and you know it. And you see those pictures and you're like, ugh. So don't knock Owen when you see a picture of him. But here's the thing about John Owen. He didn't powder his wig though. So give him a break. He wore a long wig with curls and he actually looked like the lead singer of Megadeth. He looks like the lead singer Dave Mustaine. Listen to what John Owen said, the guy who wore a wig but didn't powder his wig. Your enemy is not only upon you but is in you also. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. He also said the choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin, ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. And he also said, the mortification of indwelling sin remaining in our mortal bodies, that it may not have life and power to bring forth the works or deeds of the flesh, is the constant duty of believers. So the apostle Peter And Martin Luther and John Owen are just telling us this. Fight your passions, not other people. But instead of fighting and killing and going to war with our own selfish, sinful desires, what do we like to do in the church? What do we like to do in our families, in our workplaces? We love to fight other people, don't we? We love to bicker. We love to slander We love to gossip. We love to complain. We love to argue. We love to point out other people's flaws. We're not called to do that as God's beloved children. We're called to pick a fight with ourselves and not with others. Is there grace to forgive us when we do these things? Absolutely, because none of us are going to do this perfectly. We sin all the time. I did that this week. I caught myself on Thursday wanting to mentally pick a fight with someone and saying it out loud. And I told Heather, I was like, I gotta preach on this Sunday. Gosh, sometimes it stinks to be a preacher. When you blow it all week, knowing what you're gonna talk about. But it's not about me, it's about Jesus. But I struggle with this. Gosh, oh, I gotta put these desires to death. 
Is there grace to forgive us and cleanse us when they do these things? Absolutely. Otherwise, I would not be up here. But as you've heard me say numerous times, grace not only forgives the bad things you do, it transforms you out of the bad thing that you are. It's a slow process of becoming more and more like Christ, being conformed to his image. So there is grace. There's lots of God's grace for when we blow it. And it's God's grace that enables us to fight and kill the passions of the flesh. I don't know if you kind of have this helicopter view of 1 Peter in your Bible, but you'll see in verse 14, he talks about not giving in to the former passions of our ignorance. And then here in, in verse 11, he talks about killing these passions. But in chapter two, verse one, I think that's where he's honing in on these passages because he kind of has this sandwich, if you will. Chapter one, verse 14, don't give in to the passions of your former ignorance. Chapter two, verse 11, abstain from these evil passions. And right in the middle, the meat of it is chapter two, verse one, where he spells out what these passions are. Specifically and contextually, it's what Peter said in chapter two, verse one. These passions are malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. How many of us have malice toward our government, toward our boss, toward our spouse, toward someone in this church? How many of us are being deceptive with the government or with our boss or spouse or church? How many of us are walking around like hypocrites and there's envy and slander, all these things? I point these out not to make you feel guilty and feel bad, I point these out because I think this is what Peter is talking about when he's talking about abstaining from the passions of the flesh. We're called to fight our passions and not other people because that's exactly what Peter's audience was struggling with. There was a whole bunch of relational strife in these churches as evidenced by what Peter talks about throughout his letter. So he wants his readers to not fight with one another but instead to fight their own sinful passions that rise up as they live in relationship with other people. So we're called to kill these passions because we are God's beloved children, because we, our identity is that it's as if we are God's only child and he loves us that way, and that's why we're to kill these passions. We're called as God's beloved children, as we saw last week in verse nine, to declare the excellencies of Jesus, the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Peter is saying, as God's beloved children, you can either praise or you can gossip. You can either worship or you can slander. We were made grace to declare the glories of Jesus, not the faults of others. How often do we declare the faults of others instead of declaring the glories of Jesus, that he forgives sinners like us who always go around declaring the faults of others. I would rather talk about Jesus because he forgives me and he loves me. We were made to declare the glories of Jesus. It's right there in verse nine. We were made, created by God to tell the world about how good God has been to us how merciful he's been to us to tell the world that there's a God who loves sinners and he forgives them and washes them clean. We're here to tell other people about Jesus, but what we often struggle with is bickering with one another and 
gossiping about one another and slandering one another and we fight one another in the church and we fight one another in, with the government. We at least mentally fight with the government or we talk about them and we forward emails about our government and we fight and bigger with, bicker with people at our jobs and our, our boss and in our marriages and our church family and, and Peter will address all of these relationships as he continues in his letter. But when you realize that your brothers and sisters in Christ are on your team, that they are your family, that they are your fellow sojourners and exiles, then you begin to abstain from the passions of the flesh, from things like gossip and slander and malice. If you do the opposite, where you slander and gossip and all of these things, it will create a church culture where people do not get their passion in God ignited. Have you been around this before? It doesn't ignite your passion in God, does it? We don't want to have that kind of church culture here because it doesn't honor the Lord, but also because it goes directly against our mission statement, which is we exist to ignite a passion in every person Not to get angry about what they heard about that person, but we exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. We want to be a church that kills our sinful passions, but at the same time ignites a godly passion in others to find their joy in Jesus. But we also want to be a church that ignites the same passion in unbelievers so that Jesus becomes the passion in their life and they repent of their sins and they trust in him. And that's Peter's point in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The day of visitation is either taken as that final day when they stand before the Lord, they will give glory to him, or it probably, I think it means that they will observe how forgiving and loving and kind we are as we point to Jesus that they'll, God will regenerate them and they will become believers. But we're called to be a people who ignite a passion in other people to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. So verse 12 has this evangelistic thrust. Peter says that if our conduct is gospel-centered, we're coming back to Jesus all the time, rehearsing the gospel, that it may draw others to Jesus and they will honor and glorify him, meaning they will become believers. If our conduct is honorable, Peter says, it will draw others in. The word honorable is a, a Greek word that means attractive or beautiful. Peter's not saying, oh, if we could just be good enough, people will become Christians. Because listen, that doesn't happen. We're sinners. What he's saying is that if we give off this radiance, this beautiful, attractive radiance where we're forgiving people and merciful people and gracious people, it will cause unbelievers because they don't experience that in the world. It'll cause them to stop and say, you guys are different. You forgive him? He totally was a jerk to you and you forgive him? Yeah, there's something about this Jesus I wanna know more about. They'll become inquisitive. When we aren't bickering and gossiping and slandering, it's beautiful and it's attractive to a watching world. What did Jesus say? John 13, 35. They will know you are my disciples by your obedience. No, by your love for one another. And this is why Peter stresses several times in this letter that they should love one another, that we should love one another. Five times in this letter, Peter says, love one another, love one another. Because when we aren't loving one another, 
and when we are tearing each other down and when we're being nitpicky and nagging and complaining and slandering one another, the watching world will see it and they won't find it attractive. But if we do that, some of them might become Christians, Peter says. Several years ago, author Anne Rice said this, Christians have lost credibility in America as people who do not know how to love. We've lost credibility in America as people who know how to love. There's truth to her statement. What the world wants is they don't want us to be hypocrites. They just want us to be real, to be transparent, to be honest. The world wants to look at us and see that, for us to say, I'm just as messed up and sinful as you are. The difference is that I'm forgiven. I'm made right with God through Jesus. I'm one of his beloved. I have this foreign alien righteousness that I could not muster up on my own. It comes from Jesus, but I'm just like you. That's what they want to see. They're tired of seeing hypocrites. They're tired of us walking around like we're better than them because they see through all that. So many churches and Christians, us included, may have lost what Paul calls adorning the doctrine of our God and Savior, Titus 2.10. Churches aren't beautiful and attractive to the lost because we aren't loving, we aren't forgiving, and we aren't celebrating God's grace and extending that grace to one another. We're forgiven grace. We should be celebrating. I tell my wife all the time, let him have another donut. God's not mad at him. We're forgiven. Let our kids have another piece of candy. God loves him. He's not mad at him. Their sins are forgiven. Time to celebrate. Take another donut. What if churches created an environment like that where we celebrated grace, where we quit focusing on what people have done wrong and we started focusing on what Jesus did right, which is to obey the law on our behalf, to die in our place. I think we'd change and maybe some unbelievers would suddenly become inquisitive. Maybe some would come to know Jesus. Of course, not everyone will come to glorify Jesus as their treasure. Peter says in verse 12 that some unbelievers will speak against us. The word here for speak against us is the same word for slander that Peter used in chapter 2, verse 1. Let the world slander us, grace. Let unbelievers slander us all they want. But please, grace, let's not be a church that slanders one another. Let's kill those sinful, passionate desires to fight and bicker and complain and gossip and slander. And then let's reword our mission statement just for this sermon, which is where I got the title. We exist to kill a passion in our own person so that others would glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. We exist to kill any passion that remains inside of us that goes against the gospel, that goes against our wonderful Savior, Jesus. And when you kill your passions, your sinful passions, you actually open the door for others to have their passion in God ignited. And when you kill your passions, your sinful passions, and you do good deeds that serve others, unbelievers may come to trust in and glorify God. So fight your passions and not other people. Fight your desire to slander. Fight your desire to complain. Fight your desire to gossip. Fight your desire to envy. Fight your desire to be deceptive. Fight your desire for malice and hypocrisy. And the key to all this fighting and all this passion killing is simply the gospel. It's coming to grips with the fact that we are God's beloved, which is exactly why Peter starts this new section by calling his readers beloved in verse 11. If we are God's beloved, if we are loved by God as if we were his only child, if that's true and you become to grips with that, it will make you want 
to abstain. Want to distance yourself from the sinful passions that wage war against your soul. You won't do it perfectly. But there's a desire to say, I don't want this because God's been so good to me. We distance ourselves. We abstain. We fight. We kill sinful passions quite simply because Jesus is better. We sang it earlier. He's better than whatever sinful passion rises up inside of us. And that's why Jonathan Edwards said what we read earlier. We'll read again. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? And that's why we need to stand and sing about going heaven fully to enjoy God because that's how our next song will end. When we finally see Jesus, we'll be able to say, it is well with my soul. Let's pray before we stand and sing. Father, we come to this passage and we are all guilty. The law has leveled us because we've all gossiped and slandered and had malice and envy and we've acted the part of a hypocrite We all, to some degree, even if we don't want to admit it, have malice in our hearts toward the government, our boss, fellow employees, our spouse, our family, children, even people in this church. But the good news of the gospel is that where we failed, your son succeeded. Where we disobeyed, he obeyed. And so because of your great love towards sinners like us, Father, We can stand here forgiven. We can leave here today saying, I want to kill sin because Jesus is so good to me. Not to earn your love, but in celebration of your love. We can leave here today, Father, that though sin still remains, we leave with its power broken over our lives, its condemning power broken over our lives so that we can leave here today saying, it is well with my soul, all because of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.